On today's episode of the Globe Screen Podcast, we have composers Paul Hepker and Mark Killian. Mark is based in LA and Paul in South Africa. They're frequent collaborators who've composed the scores for many films over the years, including Official Secrets, Eye in the Sky, Remdition, and the award-winning 2005 film Totsi, which was their first collaboration with film director Gavin Hood. We had the chance to speak about the art of composing for films, emphasizing original sounds, and using unique instruments in their work together, and other filmmakers they aspire to work with on future projects. Welcome, Paul and Mark. Thank you. Hi. So could you guys uh, share with us how you first got into music, and how did you transition to scoring for films? I was kind of a late starter with music. Um, you know, I took some piano lessons and guitar lessons at school, but never really, uh, you know, thought it was going to be a career until um, much later after I left school. I, I had a compulsory two-year military service to do in South Africa in those days. Uh, and it was during that um, time that I decided I, I have to do music. I don't want to do anything else. Um, and then I started furiously studying so that I could get into university after that experience was over. Um, and then I went to, to university to study jazz um, at, uh, and then did a whole bunch of studies, jazz, composition for like, I don't know, seven years. Um, and then came to America and, well, studied even a bit more when I got here. But that's basically how I got into it. Nice. Yeah, um, I started out as a... Um, kind of classical pianist, you know, the traditional royal schools of music. Um, piano when I was maybe four or five, um, had a music scholarship to, to my high school. I didn't plan to do music with it, um, kind of the opposite of Mark. I, I was going to do medicine at university, um, but there was a kind of a foul up with, with some of my results. Um, and so I ended up trying to avoid going to the army by doing psychology and then I started joining bands while I was at university playing in kind of cover bands. And then that led to starting to do shows, like musical compilation shows. And then I got a job as Johnny Clegg's keyboard player. So I went around the world with him for a few years. And then from there, you know, writing jingles, doing some sessions, you know, working at the kind of National Theatre as a musical director on, on proper shows like Joseph and Rocky Horror and that kind of thing. And I went to the States with a friend of mine called Gabriel trying to get a, a record deal for a pop duo that we had called Zelig. And Mark had invited us, well, he invited me across there. He always encouraged me to leave South Africa. He was at that stage at USC doing film school, uh, film music. And um, yeah, so he encouraged me to come along. The record deal came close, but didn't happen. And, um, and I kind of found myself, you know, doing work as orchestrator or piano session player musical editor, whatever jobs I could find, getting involved in the film music scene through hookups that Mark had given me through the people that he'd met at film school and composers he was working with. And then, so yeah, I started doing ghostwriting and stuff for some of those composers. And then I got a good uh, TV writing job for some Discovery Channel and National Geographic wildlife shows. Um, you know, kind of got into it then. And then um, when Sotsi came along, I, I guess this will bring us kind of up to date. Um, at that point, uh, I knew Gavin uh, through a friend of mine, um, through his his ex-wife, actually. I'd known her when I was younger, and I was introduced by mutual friends to Gavin, and he was busy writing the script for Totsi at, at a friend's house. He'd be sitting in the kitchen, kind of working on it, and we'd chat about it. And after about five or six meetings, he said, oh, what do you do? <laughs> and I was like, okay, glad you finally asked. I was like, I'm a 
film composer or composer and I'd, you know, I'd love to work on this film. And he was like, oh, oh, wow, okay, you're a film composer. And so he hooked us up with a producer and I had zero experience and, um, and I kind of, so I said to Mark, you know, would, would this be something in, in, that would interest you, you know, collaborating, the two of us working with Gavin on this film, it could mean going back to South Africa. And Mark obviously had all the experience. Um, so, it, you know, it, it, it seemed like we could probably convince the production team, you know, that we could do this, um, do this feature. And he agreed and we jumped through all the hoops and, and finally got ourselves hired on it. And, and that was how the adventure started. And we've been kind of joined at the hip since then so to speak in, in Gavin's movies that's pretty that's pretty amazing it was an amazing film I watched it actually a while back I saw it uh, I would say like six seven years ago did you and so you you guys transitioned I guess with assisting other composers and like you mentioned Paul that you also did some ghostwriting um could you share how these earlier roles helped you both transition into your careers as composers? Well, personally, I, you know, working with some of the film composers that Mark had actually introduced me to, I didn't find that there was a much of a launch. It wasn't much of a launch pad. Um, you know, you were definitely kind of an, an assistant in, in, in that role. But the amazing thing was to be witness for me, at, at least, you know, having not studied it, witnessing firsthand what it meant, how to, you know, to, once you got a movie, spotting it, you know, working out the plans, you know, the cues that you're going to write, setting a timetable, you know, show and tell with the producer and the director and how that goes down and then taking notes and incorporating them or not. You know, there's also booking musicians and all, just all the day-to-day -day stuff. It was just amazing to be, you know, in that situation and, and you know, the, the, the composer I worked a lot with was Dan Licht, you know, as he kind of, I think as he trusted me more and more, he gave me more and more responsibilities, which was, which was great. So you started to learn, you know, parts of, of what it was, to, what it meant to be a film composer, kind of sheltered a little bit by somebody else who's going to take the flat at the end of the day. And then those um, responsibilities grew and he, you know, you had me writing cues and, um, and, you know, then we started collaborating as, as, as I left him and started working on my own. We started collaborating on bits and pieces, you know, together kind of as um, kind of co-composers, which was, which was fun. But it's all kind of really thanks to Mark, because when I arrived in LA, I didn't know anyone and had no money, <laughs> no job. And Mark, you know, kind of hooked me up with, with, with some of these guys. Um, and I got to do some work, Christopher Young, um, Dan Licht. Mark will be able to tell you way more about um, that side of things. I kind of took a very roundabout route to to getting to do film music which you know involved many many other things apart from actually being a film composer so so mark uh, i guess you discovered paul living down in a ran, uh, in a van by the river <laughs> as <almost>. they said <laughs> and yeah and saw that he had potential and then took him under your wing was it something along those lines um no i knew paul very well already so you know, i I'd, I'd convinced him to come to la um anyway so um when i left university here at usc i went to work for christopher young for about three years um and then i assisted dan licht for about a year and some change and then another composer mandur for a while and for me it really was a, a spring off point because you know all the academic stuff you learn is is one thing but actually seeing it all in in real time making those connections was really important meaning all of that experience didn't get me a job but it, it gave me all the tools that i needed when i did get a job to know who to call know the musicians already have those relationships 
And yeah, so in, in, in the midst of that, I can't remember what movie it was um, called. I think it might have been Hard Rain Would be. or something. We need, <laughs> Hard Rain, yeah. We needed some help. Well, actually, Paul Paul's a very good sight reader, pianist. And in those days, Christopher Young still hadn't transitioned to doing mock-ups on, on computers. So he did his um, presentations to directors and producers on a piano. Uh, so we hired Paul to come in and, 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 and play through Chris's... Um, you know, um, sketches. Uh, Those were fun sessions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not like that anymore. Okay, well, I mean, just just for your listeners, because it's fun. I mean, in that in, in that day, obviously, Chris would have written out, you know, the dots. You know, maybe in, in eight stave, you know, com- uh, kind of a composer's chart with some of the melodies and some basic sketches of the different parts and the themes and horns and strings and stuff. And um, for this one particular session, I remember, um, you know, we we're playing. He had a VHS tape. You know, and he'd play the he'd start the track, and there'd be like a clip track or something we'd be playing with. There were two pianists, and Chris would stand next to the piano, and he'd be looking at the director and the producer and the screen, and he'd be kind of gauging whether there was enough energy coming from what we were playing. I'd be playing at the bottom, and, like, boom, 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 boom. and the, the pianist at the top would be, and then Chris would be like, you know, like a whole performance kind of thing. Um, you know, until he could see that the directors and the producer kind of, you know, were, were on the same page, you know, and sometimes you kind of shake your body a little bit like I need more from you, <laughs> like a conductor, like a very physical hands-on kind of thing. So it was, it was almost like performance theatre selling, selling those cues. It was, That's it was interesting. Yeah. yeah, it was an interesting experience for me. Nowadays, it's, you know, like you start the computer and it plays back what you've programmed, you know, it's all synced up and all that kind of stuff. This was a very live live performance thing and you filled in gaps and you know i think having like mark said having played a lot of piano it was you know reading those charts was was pretty easy so i could add other stuff on top you know that's incredible um yeah yeah <laughs> um and and since you guys have collaborated with it, it seems like you've had sub i mean that's how filmmaking is i mean there's collaborations over time and you've collaborated with gavin hood as you've mentioned several times, including with uh, Official Secrets and Eye in the Sky and Remdition as well as Totsi. Eye in the Sky, I saw, I saw it the other day. I really I really enjoyed it, and I, I really enjoyed how the score was... It complemented the film really well, and I thought it was really versatile throughout the film, you know, which was nice, because sometimes there's a, a, a score and it's just kind of the same thing throughout the movie, but I thought this really had different feelings for different scenes throughout the film which i i thought it complemented it really nicely thanks what was that process like sort of in a way we were working backwards i think on that film we'd 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 already gone through a whole process i think when i was in durban with you hey paulie we'd gone through a whole process of trying to build a, a sound um you know like build a group for this for the score and experiment with what we were going to do which is the advantage that we have working with Gavin because we get to come on really early, even pre-script sometimes when he's formulating the idea in his head. So we start working earlier than you most of the time get to work. Um, the disadvantage of that is you sometimes go down a road and you end up saying, once you start seeing the edit come back, oh, this is all not really working. We have to change stuff. But the beauty is you get to experiment with a lot of stuff. And that's what happened in Eye in the Sky. We went down a whole road that we ended up not uh, in the end using, um, but it did morph into something else, which Paulie can speak more to, which is uh, we sort of used an iPad 
Um, you know, we wanted to get the feeling of what these little robots and drones and, and what this artificial intelligence sort of world meant musically. What, what, how could we portray that? And, and Paulie found a, um, a couple of programs on the iPad that let you put audio in. So we'd put audio in of orchestras and all sorts of stuff. And then you can totally manipulate that. Um, and it's very granular. So you get these little bits. It makes it very digital in a way. And then what I meant when I say we work backwards is, you know, obviously we're also writing melodies and things like that, but, but they only sort of start developing later on as the film develops. You really don't hear much of that early on. No, no, that's, that's fascinating in, in general. And, and, I, and I definitely see the advantage of, of both sides of doing it as, as far as coming in on a pre-script level, because I think um, I, I made a feature film and I, I was lucky enough to work with some some pretty talented composers that were from my area that grew up in the Bronx and these guys, Andrew Marinaccio and Michael Stevens, that I told them that I want to make an urban Western. So they were involved in it pretty much as I was writing the script. And then we were kind of just communicating. At first it was like really like broad strokes, like, Hey, what, what kind of things are you influenced by? And, you know, then they started working on little things and then it, then it's as over time it became more specific until we finally then made the film and, some of the songs were already written and then some of them then were written sp for specific scenes. So, and that, that we was kind of, had that, Oh no, I was just gonna say, and that was my favorite part of the process really just working like on the, the sound design and this like, and with the composers on the score of the film. Right. Well, I think, um, you know, Mark mentioned kind of how early we start on Gavin's films and obviously it all started with Totsi and, you know, we went back there while while he was filming, and very early on, partly budget related, but partly because because we had such specific ideas. Gavin had some specific ideas written into the script about the balance of Kwaito, the, the the kind of African music, which is quite harsh and aggressive, and balancing that out with the, the the softer African sounds. You know, like the choirs and all those kind of things. There were some specific songs that he wanted to use, and and so Mark and I kind of for that job, we we took on the roles of kind of music supervisors, music editors, and the composers. And um, there wasn't really a sound effects person. I mean, there was obviously Foley and all that kind of stuff done later, but what we did is we took all of those, the songs, the source material, we listened to a thousand Kwaito tracks. We, you know, we, we worked with record companies to try and, you know, find the ones that we needed and that worked. And then we managed to edit some of those, you know, ourselves that they blended with what we'd done with the score and stuff to kind of give it the seamless experience. And because of, you know, some of the suspense and the thrilling part of the, the um, of scoring that film, we got to kind of make music that was a little bit sound effects, you know, like, um, so we started creating our own instruments, found sounds out of, you know, thinking about the, sh the shanties and, and the, the townships, you know, with those corrugated iron shacks and all that just, you know, all of those things. So we went to the hardware store to buy our musical instruments in the back of Mark's dad's Uno. And we came back with pipes and glass panels and wires and a deck chair and some old cello strings and lots of cans and, and all of, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And we started recording and making libraries, uh, you know, out of these different instruments that we could blow or pluck or, you know, hit or smash. And yeah, so we kind of, it's, it, we, the, the, the genetic material for how we work together later was kind of started there. We kind of got, we got so excited over the fact that we were creating these sounds and these noises from scratch rather than reaching for traditional instruments or synthesizers or synth patches or that kind of thing, you know, sample libraries. 
we were just, we were kind of making it from just to interject there for the listeners who might not know um if they haven't seen sotsi the sotsi happens in uh what was called a township in those days where because of apartheid um black people lived and so these townships are predominantly made of corrugated iron all the houses um, are made of corrugated iron that people just sort of build themselves so it's a very metallic world to live in and so that's what we were trying to create that's why we thought you know going to a garage and finding all this metallic type of stuff to make it create this library was 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 the way to sort of go with the score right so it was and it was kind of interesting so he came up with all these instruments and then um you know we were doing a kind of a show and tell with 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 the producer and he came in and and he was kind of listening and I think he was expecting some kind of traditional score with violins and all that kind of stuff. And he was hearing these sounds and you know, there was nothing familiar. It was music, but it was really music concrete, like these found sounds that we kind of manipulated and Mark's superb at like sonically sculpting, you know, samples and sounds. And we make these pads and, and these different things, speeding things up or slowing them down. And he, like you could see after 15 or 20 minutes, he was like, well, you know, what are these instruments? And we'd say, well, See those wine glasses over there, that's that. And and you see that deck chair with the cello strings, we've been bowing that, you know, just pulling the cello, the deck chair apart to make the notes higher or lower. And he was kind of a little bit like, what have I spent my money on with these guys? You know, kind of <laughs> kind of <laughs> doing all this. Did he eventually come around to it? No, not really. He spent the rest <laughs> of the time trying to replace us, to be honest. Oh wow. But um, you know, after um Sotsi won the Edinburgh Film Festival and then it won the Toronto Film Festival. And it started to, you know, um, gain some momentum. It started getting nominated for, you know, obviously the bigger the BAFTAs and Golden Globes and Oscars and stuff. That's I think amazing. there was a point at which Gavin kind of said, you know, Peter, I think we can kind of stick with the music that's in there. But you, have, you have to finish your story, Paulie, about what he said. So he said, um, you know, like, um, what a, you know, haven't you got any proper musical instruments? And so, you know, me. Can't we buy the boys proper instruments? Can't we buy the boys proper instruments? And I said, you can blow it, you can pluck it, you can hit it, you can smash it, you can, you know, tap on it. That's all musical instruments are. That's all we're doing. We're just, just not doing it on the traditional stuff, you know. So, yeah, anyway, so yeah, it, was, it was an interesting experience. But, but yeah, amazing. so like I'm saying. Yeah, so so going back to like Eye in the Sky or Rendition, you know, we'd kind of we so much of filmmaking is about these make, building these relationships and these experiences with people like directors and gaining their trust and being able to express what they're looking for and finding a voice for somebody you may not necessarily know how to express it in words because you know talking about music as a felonious monk said it's like dancing about architecture, you know, it's like they they're just it's hard to you know to find the words that can match exactly what you're looking for so i think that experience and and how successful it was and and you know how um, fun it was because i think mark and i always kept everything kind of pretty fun and creative and spontaneous i think gavin liked that too so we just kind of continued to recreate that sort of experience of getting involved really early on in rendition going to morocco um you know to record sounds and collect the sounds there you know in this kind of alien world um rendition um and then eye in the sky like mark said we were starting to collect sounds and we were, we were going down the digital routes ipads and apps and trying to create some pixelated music you know that would would work with the spy cameras and the drones and all that kind of stuff you know so the, the musical equivalent of what it's like to have these distorted images um pixelated images you know i need one frame a second like how do we 
So we gave those cameras and those drones a voice, and that was mostly what Mark, Mark was talking about earlier, this, this iPad granulation thing called Borderlands. Ah, so okay. we performed, we, we loaded it up with our, our music, and then, you know, Mark and I would perform it to the, to the you know, like um, improvise it. Because we actually, yeah, we haven't touched on that, but Mark and I have a strong improvisation history. That's kind of how oh, we first nice. bonded, really. Yeah. Mark, Mark can tell you about that. Yeah, tell me about the improvisation history. Yeah, we, we were both, um, when we met in our early, mid twenty something like that, and I was playing in a jazz band in Durban, and Paulie was doing, was, was a classical guy, but he was doing um, 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 theater, musical theater at that time. Um, you know, in, in some ways very opposite, pianistically speaking, the two of us. Um, but he came and saw me play, and we invited him up to jam, and then we sort of made a friendship from there, um, and it always included us sitting on a piano or sometimes two pianos, um, um, just improvising. And it was interesting because my improvisation comes from a jazz background. His improvisation comes from a classical background. And it, it was really interesting, those two worlds mixing in our improvisations. That's pretty cool. And, and yeah, so we kind of, we got a shorthand language, I think, for each other. Like, you know, if you do anything together, um, I guess, like if you've, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. I mean, we literally, Mark and I would spend, we were doing shows together um, uh, at the National Theatre in Pretoria, you know, like in the proper opera house with these big Steinways, you know, eight, 10 foot Steinways. And after our show was finished, we'd quickly go and eat dinner and then we'd go downstairs into the dark where there's these Steinways and we'd just sit at them and improvise kind of Keith Jarrett's kind of style for hours. And once you've done hours and hours and hours of that, you kind of start to get a sense of each other's you know, um, timing and energy. And, and I think we bring that into our composing, you know, there's a kind of a, a sense of, of capturing an improvised performance, you know, like inspired by the picture or, or just having a mood or an idea and there's enough for me to know or Mark to know, let's hit record, you know, this is gonna be, this might be something special, you know? So that kind of shorthand that we have as as collaborators really helps helps a lot in the, in the film thing. Cause, you know, yeah, we bring that kind of improvisational um, that response, that empathy, really, with the, with the characters and stuff on screen, kind of emoting maybe what's going on or what Gavin wants us to emote, you know, bring, bringing that together and sometimes being the editor and sometimes being the performer or the producer, um, and we can switch those roles pretty well. And, um, and I think that's that's a, a you know big source of of our kind of co-composing power. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that about the characters and about the empathy and about the emotions, because that's what it all ties back into. And I think that's what makes you guys stand out as great composers, because it's not just about just making a good song, but it's about how that particular piece fits in with the narrative storytelling. And I say the same thing about cinematographers, like, you know, like a good cinematographer is just concerned about making a good image. But I feel like a great cinematographer is concerned about really enhancing and elevating the storytelling. I feel like you guys are doing the same thing with the music. Thank you. Yeah, I think as a composer, you really are a storyteller first and a musician yeah. and a composer second. Yes. Well said. Uh, and is there are, are there other composers that you sort of admire that uh, are either contemporary or just growing up that you've admired their work? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are, Plenty, but I, I'm, I think like today, contemporary speaking about um, composers today that really excite me is um, um, Nicholas Breitel and Daniel Pemberton. Those two guys, I think, are like the 
the most talented guys working today. Just, yeah, he's fantastic. Just some documentary on the on the on the kids in the cave in it was a Thailand. Oh yeah, he's, he's pretty young, right? Um, he yeah, he's he's younger than us. I I I'm not sure if he's in his thirties or something. But Daniel Pemberton's interesting because he actually had a software company. So I used to buy his stuff. Oh no way! Uh, this That's is before so he became a composer. I can't even remember what the name of the software company was, but um. So I knew him through that before. Yeah, I heard him on a podcast. I think that's why I thought he was on the younger side. He sounded, or I mean, it's hard to tell. No, super interesting. Both of them, you know, um, this Don't Look Up movie that just came out, uh, Nicholas Bratello. I, I mean, I ended up in the beginning of good, the movie. Yeah. I was like, what are you doing? This is terrible. Um, but by the end, I was completely sold on the whole concept. It was so brilliant. Yeah. How about you, Paul? Yeah, there Oh, there, this, you know, I'm just um, blown away by the quality of, of film music. I mean, I, I watch documentaries a lot. I, I kind of prefer kind of uh, um, nonfiction, mostly. And there's always, I mean, there's always an, a score for, you know, for a documentary. And I just think how amazing, how amazing it is. I mean, and it's a different person each time. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's, there's so many young, young composers coming out. Um, as far as like film composers I, I i enjoy i've enjoyed uh, johnny greenwood greenwood's um yeah um, i know he does a lot, a lot of stuff with paul thomas yeah. anderson right yeah yeah i think he did um, phantom thread right? like there will be blood and things yeah. like that yeah. um I, I i it's just amazing because you know mark and i also when we write together um it's it's very different we we, we kind of have the luxury of a of a of a director who <laughs> He's averse to noticing the music. He kind of, um, he says, I can hear the music. I can hear, and it's a problem. When he says, I can hear the music, it's, it's taking him out of the scene. You know, so Gavin has, has like this major sensitivity to something that's that's conflicting with with the, the energy or the what's what's happening on screen. And so if there's a jazzy chord or like a weird delay or a sound or something, like it pulls him out of it and he instantly gets, he gets his back up and, you know, so... It's 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 been interesting. He he's happy for us to just use a single voice or like you know a scrape you know some some crazy like Asian instruments and like play one long note on that string. If it does what it, it needs to do, then he's happy with that. And so we've had situations. Mark shared a studio with the composer Chris Chris Beck for a long time. And Chris Chris used to come in and he'd say, "I'm so jealous of you guys. Like you've just scored like a five minute scene with like two instruments and a voice." You know, and I've got like a 120 piece orchestra that I've got 30 people all working on, like, you know, doing the orchestration and the programming, the orchestra mock-ups, and we still do it. And that's only one minute and 40, and it's taken me like 10 days to do. So he, he's kind of jealous of the fact that we've been allowed to, you know, um, create these scores that are not, you know, not your traditional kind of Holly, Hollywood things and and um, Hollywood scores. So. That, I like that as well. But I think that's why my ear yeah. picks up with Johnny Greenwood and some of those other guys that are doing stuff that, that's a little bit left of center too. I, I, I appreciate that, you know, and yeah. that's coloring outside the lines as it were, you know. I, I like I like also uh, Mike Patton's work when he did, did you guys see The Place Beyond the Pines? No. It's a really, really good that, film. No. And Mike Patton from Faith <coughs> Hill Moore did, uh, was the composer of it. Okay. Yeah, um, I thought, I thought yeah, it came out so really nice. Yeah, I'll have, I'll have a look for that. Um, we've got um, some friends that are, are doing the music for Cobra Kai right now, and that's a great and show. So <laughs> I was um, just Zach, talking about Zach that show. Leo, 
Zach and Leo were assistants to Chris Beck while Mark had his studio. You know, they were sharing the same premises. And so um, Zach and Leo and Mark and Chris, myself, we used to play football, you know, like for hours on end. You know, so it was like, a, it, was, it was great to see those guys being successful because they're, you know, they're, they're really so talented. It's amazing. I mean, there's so many talented people out here. My friend Carly Paradi also does the music for Line of Duty and some of the other big BBC um, uh, series. And she's just doing amazing stuff too. Young Canadian composer. Um, yeah. There's, there's so much, so much good stuff out there. Have you guys watched Cobra Kai? I've watched some. Yeah. I've watched some of it. I've, I've been to one of their live, because they do live uh, shows, well, at least before the <coughs> pandemic they did, um, which are super fun, because the, the cast comes along and they all get on stage and have a good old time. It's oh, that's really, pretty really cool. Fun show. Yeah, no, I, I think it's very well written and well done. Um, I'm a big 80s fan, and I know that, you know, they kind of, their band, before they got the Cobra Kai gig, they kind of had an 80s, 80s band right that used to do mm. used to perform in santa monica so yeah i enjoy that stuff so but paul you mentioned earlier that you were doing a cover band like what, what sort of bands would you cover oh well that you know, it's interesting it's, we're talking about apartheid right so there were sanctions um against international performers coming and perform performing here so when we grew up you know apart from people that would come to sun city and play sun city against the advice of all the you know um, anti-apartheid activists um there weren't other bands that would come and tour so there was a big market for cover bands you know like your wedding band kind of thing so they would, we would just do the hits of the day but that was amazing for me because um from a production point of view as a keyboard player i'd have to listen to these you know productions that trevor horn or these guys had, had, had put together and i'd figure out how the bass and you know like how these things would work together work out the horn lines you don't realize it, but you're starting to learn like some seriously, um, you know, because we would then program it on the MC500 or whatever the sequence Sort of like were, reverse, like, en reverse engineering it, sort of. Yeah, like taking something apart and then you start to figure out, you know, you figure out how it works. And so um, all of all of these skills, I would just say to anybody who's thinking about becoming a film composer is everything, everything will come in useful. It's like the more tricks you can have in your bag, especially um, the things that aren't spoken about as much is about dealing with with performers and dealing with people and getting performances out of them um you know creating a good atmosphere being able to communicate effectively not getting defensive like these are psychological personality skills that are at least 50 percent of it you know you can you're not going to get very far if you're fighting with your director or your producer or you're abrasive or you're defensive or you can't take notes and that's something everybody when they start out it's something you have to learn the hard way you know it's um it's hard for somebody if you spend a lot of time on something and they go, no, that's terrible. What else do you have? That's you know, great it's advice. Like, you want to go like, yeah. <laughs> you want to go, screw you. you. Who do you think you are? Well, like yeah. I'm paying your salary and I'm the director. So what else do you have? No, yeah. Paul, what you're saying? One, no, go one ahead. piece of advice I would ever give someone is, is, you know, realize that you are there to make the director's vision come true. And sometimes you're not going to agree or even like the director's vision. But you know what, it's it's been enough times in my career anyway, where I was wrong, where like I go down a road and I'm like, this is just not working. This is not good. And then at some point I realized, you know what? Wow, this actually is great. And 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 so you have to really understand that you're there to make the director's vision come true. Yeah, you really are a mouthpiece, right? Um, yeah. You know, you have to, that's, you, you learn that often. It's, it's one of the hardest things to take, I think, when, because yeah. creating, writing music comes from such a personal and, 
you know, unless you're just churning out stuff. I mean, if you're if you're deeply kind of emotionally invested in the work that you do, and and a good composer needs to be that. I think it it shows on screen when when somebody's invested. But when you are invested, and and somebody says, "Well, your baby's really ugly," <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, let's let's go with this other thing. You go, but it's my baby. Can't just throw it out. Well, well yeah. I'm sure so, sometimes directors could probably be a bit more tactful if they're, you know, I, I would like to at least be more tactful if I was approaching somebody's creative art, you know, and even if it wasn't the yeah. direction that I want to go in, at least respecting what they brought to the table. Um, no, absolutely. Because sometimes some it's directors, easier when, when the director is, is well, direct, excuse blind. the pun. Yeah. <laughs> Um, when you really know what they're thinking, um, rather than a director who's too afraid to to approach that because they don't want to hurt your feelings, that usually doesn't end up going well. No, that that's a good point, Paul, uh, Mark, and 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 honestly, that some of those sorts of shorthand do come from continued collaboration with certain people. For example, yeah. uh, I work with the same cinematographer and the same colorist, and he did, and he's as far as color grading, he's one of the best in the business. He's he's amazing and. We, we did a film last year where he did the color grade and I just told him, I was like, this is so different than what I was picturing, you know? And it was like, it's way more saturated here, you know? And then he, and then at first he was like, Oh, okay. He kind of recalibrated based off my notes. And then later on he came around he's like, you know what, Zeph, actually you were kind of right. It actually, uh, I think this was more suited for the story, you know? Right. Not that what he did was bad. It's just not the direction that I wanted to go in for that particular thing. You know, I mean, that was right. you know, for color grading, but it's all relative. And yeah. what, the advice that you guys are giving is is really great advice for people getting into the business because it's not just about how talented somebody is, but it's all it's also about because it's such a collaborative medium that it is also about these interpersonal sort of relations and not letting your ego sort of get in the way. I think is so important. No, absolutely. The talent um, and and the skill is the entrance fee. That's it. Yeah, you've got to yeah. take that for granted that you can do what it what's required of you as a as a film composer. The rest is the ability to to you know communicate effectively, to listen well, and to be able to kind of you know to 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 hear something and then uh, um kind of express it, you know, in a way that the director feels like they've been heard, you know. Um, but Mark touched on it earlier, but one of the hardest things is when somebody doesn't really know what they want. And that's also a difficult position to be in because, damn, it's, it's hard because you go through five or six or seven or eight different things. And then eventually they go back with the one that you did first, which was your, your instinctive, you know, choice. Uh, and they go, yeah, that was it. But there's a, you know, sometimes you've got to run that race. And you just got to go around and around and around the mulberry bush, you know, 15 or 20 times until you get to the point where they go, oh, now I know what I want. And yeah, that was what you gave me first, like on, <laughs> a month ago. Um, I'm, I'm smiling because I, I know the struggle. I do a lot of client work where that's literally happened to me, where I've presented them something and then they're like, oh, you know what? Change it, change it to this. And then they bring in a committee of other people. They're like, well, why don't we change yeah. it to this? And it's like, we're literally changing it to the thing I had in the first place. But uh, then I have to bite my tongue and be like, okay, no problem. <laughs> no problem. We'll do it that way. <laughs> yeah. There's all these hidden little things that you discover as a film composer. Like, for instance, at, at first I found, you know, if, if a director was using a temp track, I found that really informative because obviously it gives you a ballpark idea of, 
you know, of what kind of mood or tempo or feeling or you know, genre they're even imagining, you know, over their, their movie. But the worst thing is when they find something in the temp track and they're absolutely married to it. I mean, it just makes a scene perfect. And it's, it's the one thing you can't give them. And it's the one thing they want the most. And yeah. it's a really like, it's the strangest thing because it's, I know you love that and it's perfect for it, but that's the one thing I can't give you. And then you end up having to try and mock it up or you know, fake it or, and it's, it's hard. And you're like, I'm definitely going to get sued for this. You know, <laughs> it sounds like a rewritten, you know, I've rewritten this theme again. Right, Mark? Yeah, I mean, basically, the better the temp is, the more difficult your job is going to be as a composer. Yeah. Yeah, I I know what you mean, because I come from an editing background. And so it, it does get tricky, especially, I mean, music. Music could be so tough in that regards, for sure. Absolutely. The best the best editors, uh, in in my opinion, are the editors who understand that and for whom the temp track is just a carpet um, to provide them with, with the, the necessary rhythm, but for whom the temp track is not the golden, you know, look what I found. This is making the scene so brilliant. Um, and, and there are editors who understand that that is a dangerous road to walk down. Yeah, I try, right. I try not, when I've edited a lot of narrative content, I, I haven't used a lot of temp tracks for that reason. That's a good thing. We've been yeah. kind of lucky because because um, uh, Gavin has used the same editor, Megan Gill. She's she's absolutely amazing, and um, you know, for a lot of these movies, there are periods of a few weeks, you know, in post production where it's pretty much Mark and myself and Megan and Gavin in a room um, discussing, you know, what works, what doesn't. And Gavin's a very collaborative person, so he he at least gives you the chance to express your opinion, and you know, and there's and and so they can be sometimes these, you know, long extended discussions over what's right or wrong. And there's Megan's, you know, idea and Mark's idea. And sometimes my idea is different and Gavin's and then it kind of, sometimes it ends up two against two or, you know, um, Gavin obviously ends up with a final say, but he's allowed himself to be swayed, you know, sometimes. Um, but going back to the editing point, Megan has done all of his films with us. And what's nice about that is that she tries to edit um, the rough cuts and stuff of the movies that she's working on with him out of our music, you know, music that we've written ourselves, which kind of helps. So we know where it comes from. Every now and then there might be something that we, you know, that she needs that we haven't covered um, and she'll bring something else in, but her instincts are normally really great. Um, you know, but it is nice to have somebody who, you know, you give them a folder of 300 tracks that you've, you've done, you know, um, different versions and she cuts from your own music. So you kind of know what you know the commonality helps you know find the, the final product quite quickly which is more effortlessly quite quickly sometimes yeah and what's the process like when you guys are working with uh an orchestra for instance on eye in the sky you worked with the budapest film orchestra how much of the film was composed with the orchestra and and i guess um does this vary depending on the schedule and I don't think the schedule has much to do with the the orchestra is is just another tool in your bag. Um, if I in the sky, the orchestra came to signify um, certain points in the story that were developing in in an emotional way, um, and when the story was 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 basically leveling up, um, and and the way we work, and I think most composers are the same. You're you're writing it um, in the box um, when you're coming up with the with the themes, and you're 
programming it to the best of your ability, which means you're actually orchestrating. Um, you know, you're not just writing a string patch and saying, oh, it's going to do that. You're actually going, okay, violin ones are doing this, violin twos are doing this, violas are doing this. So you're, so by the time you come to starting, you know, start to prepare the, the session, uh, you basically, in, in, in this case, we didn't use an orchestrator because it's already orchestrated. Um, and, and so it just needs to be transformed into pages that the orchestra can read. And that's something that just, um, you know, one of our assistants is going to do. Um, and I think a lot of people find that because you have to present in your mock-ups, you know, the, the best sound you can. It has to be almost sound as 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 though it were an orchestra to begin with. Right to sell to sell the director and producer right. when they're expecting that sound. But I'd, I'd say probably more than anything, budget dictates dictates whether we get to use an orchestra or not because obviously they're fairly expensive, and as as schedules get tighter and budgets get smaller, it's, it's harder and harder for composers to use. Well, especially local orchestras, you know, in the states are mostly unionized or expensive, so you tend to use these really amazing um, foreign orchestras that have kind of sprung up and filled that niche. Um, but what was interesting about um, I, uh, I Am The Sky is we did use an orchestra for, we took some of that stuff we talked about earlier, the granular iPad music. It was sometimes really weird. There was this atonality and these shifting grains going against each other. And so we gave um, the orchestrator, we, we got them to to listen to those like those weird synth parts and write the orchestral equivalent. Remember, Mark? So we'd have this, this really aleatoric kind of weird you know synth sounds um synth sounds being emulated by this budapest orchestra and there was some putting those together that made it kind of interesting because it didn't sound digital anymore because it wasn't really there was like a 30 or 40 piece string section all of them like doing this together and it made these kind of weird shifting organic digital hybrid crossover sounds which was um which was fun now you're working with orchestras always Find the live orchestra. Mark Mark is a great conductor, <clears throat> you know. So, and it helps again knowing that I'm in the booth, maybe listening, listening back, and following, um, you know, what's happening with the orchestra and Mark's there, um, and we have that shorthand of knowing, you know, if something worked or it didn't, or where it didn't work, or, and so sometimes we'd switch off the click track and you know do something live, you know, just being able to do that and knowing that we can trust each other to, you know, um, communicate. Is, is 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 a nice part of collaborating yeah what was it like when you first started conducting mark i loved it i mean from the from the beginning even even back in in university in durban um um conducting jazz jazz bands i, I just i just found us somehow it just made sense to me um and so I, I i never really took any conducting classes as, as such but i did sort of practice it, you know, on my own reading through scores. And actually my first real conducting gig was, was doing a piece for the matrix for the second, was it the second one? Yeah. Uh, with, with Rob D I, I ended up orchestrating that and conducting, you know, at, I think it was Paramount, this huge orchestra with Don Davis in the booth, like super nervous, you know, it was amazing. Cool. That's amazing. Yeah. And I have to ask you guys this question that I ask. Each compo all composers. Have you seen the movie Whiplash? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was an incredible film. It's amazing score that too. I mean, when you think how much really was. just you know jazz drumming and you know just the, the energy and yeah, yeah, amazing. Yes, yeah, as as, uh, as someone who came from a jazz school, I'm 
perhaps less enthralled with that movie and that score. Probably feel like it wasn't accurate to what most people's experiences are, right? You know, I just, you know, I mean, everyone's experience is different, um, but the sort of um, military aspect of how they were drilled never, never really rang true to me or authentic. That was the one problem. And then, um, you know, I mean, musically, it, it, it's a fine score. It's just a, very often in, in jazz schools of, you know, when they're at that level, um, the music's very often quite a bit more sophisticated than it ended up being in the film. And I understand why they did that, because they're trying to appeal to, you know, but in jazz schools, these guys who play like that on that level are, you know, arranging the crap out of things. I mean, they, mm -hmm. the arrangements and, and all the stuff are amazing and, and very forward thinking, whereas this was just kind of toned down, um, probably because they wanted to appeal to a wider audience. I get it. Gotcha. For some reason, I just... While you were talking about that, I just, I have the score for Cotton Club going through my head, you know, the John Barry thing. Now there's a jazz score that just, yeah. I don't know if you remember that. It was amazing. Yeah. You know, if you haven't heard it, you should I'm, check I'm it out. I'm familiar with the film, but I actually have never watched it. Francis Ford Coppola okay. directed it, right? I think so. And John yeah, Barry did the music. Yeah, yeah. I know there was, yeah, there was but a The score for that is, it's, it's I'm gonna really watch it. cool. I have I mean, to put it on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any directors that you haven't, collaborated with that would that you'd like to work with well you just mentioned one it'll probably never happen <laughs> but coppola <clears throat> you know the sort of apocalypse now is where i really first got my love of film music as was platoon and and so oliver stone is oliver another stone, one yeah. i would probably put even number one on my list that i would love to work with yeah i was just listening to yeah, a podcast actually oliver stone okay i'm more i, I, I lean more I'm sorry. Sorry, Zip. I didn't, yeah, hear, didn't hear. I that. didn't hear what you said. Sorry. Oh no! I was just listening to Oliver Stone on a podcast the other day. Talking. I guess oh, okay. he just did a recent new documentary about JFK. It sounds kind of right. interesting. I saw that. It was interesting. The, the JFK thing. Yeah. That's obviously another. Yeah. No. No. It was interesting. It was kind of interesting that the the film, I guess, came out 30 years. The original JFK film came out 30 years yeah. after. Yeah. You know that JFK was assassinated. Now this documentaries coming out about 30 years after he did that film. Well, yeah. yeah. So I saw the documentary and they've got all this stuff that's been um, released and unredacted. So there's a lot of information that he, that he was accused of making up in the original JFK film that funnily enough, like when with the research and the, the thousands and thousands of pages of stuff that's been released and made public, it turns out that, you know, the, the fiction wasn't far from the truth here and a lot, in a lot of those things. And, and there was a lot of cover-ups and a lot of, all the things that they were talking about, but um, as far as working with directors, I mean, those guys are amazing. I'm I'm kind of more drawn to, um, like the Caro and Jeanet kind of um, Amelie City of Lost Children, um, Jim Jarmusch, like these kind of quirky smaller independent films. You know, with a little bit of a kind of a pseudo classical, uh, romantic vibe to the to the scores. You know, Jan Tiersen does them. Um, um, yeah, so those are the kind of, I think those are the directors I'd, I'd like to work with. And, and I'd love to just do a Pixar, one of the Pixar animated movies that just would bring back my musical theater, writing songs and character stuff, you know, along with the film scoring. You know, I can imagine doing, who's who's doing all that stuff now? Brett, um, Brett what's his name, Mark? The guy doing all the Pixar thing, Ratatouille and Brad, Brad's, his name <laughs> I loved uh, I loved Soul. That that was such a great. Oh, Soul was amazing. Uh, 
That was a good school. Paul, have you ever seen the Jim Jarmusch movie, um, Broken Flowers? With Bill Murray, I have. Yeah, that was. Incredible. I loved that. Yeah, I loved it. I well. loved that. A night on Earth. Have you seen that? Yeah, that was um, incredible as well. Yeah, that was. A really so I like those kind of quirky, um, those quirky independent kind of character movies. Um, I don't know if I'd have the, <laughs> if I'd have the guts to take on a, a Coppola or Stone movie because I can just imagine it would be like um, it'd be pretty intense. Well, I, <laughs> I don't know if I'd survive it. Anything at that level, you know. Um, is it's just a different ball game you know we're, we're both friends with a few guys who are up in that sort of level where they <coughs> do these massive movies and it's uh wow it's quite something you you really gotta have a certain kind of personality to to survive that world you know mark have you seen the coppola film the conversation with gene Hackman? yeah that's one of my favorites as well yeah yeah and they, they use a lot of jazz because he Guess yeah. he listens to a lot of jazz in the film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it was Stanley Kubrick that said film as a medium is more like music than it is any other art form. And That's as I progress yeah. as a filmmaker, I, I know what he's talking about. I understand yeah. what he's talking about because everybody thinks of it. Well, many people think of it as a visual medium, but it's, it's so much more than that. And I think the audio aspect of it, as I progress personally, that's something that I have more and more and more of an appreciation for and yeah, something that yeah. I pay more attention to. And even on a script level, like as yeah. far as just what sounds should be in the film, you know? Yeah. Mm. Exactly. I loved, um, there was a discussion I heard, I can't even remember, I couldn't be able to place it, but they were talking about how, um, how exceptional music was for all those centuries. Cause it was the only, it was the only art form that, that needed time to be performed like a painting, a sculpture, all these things, they were, they ultimately were static, you know, it wasn't, the, the sculpting wasn't filmed and then watched or the painting wasn't, it, you just got the finished product and it was a thing that was like a moment in time and, and music unfolded and it was kind of an experience. That's probably why it, emotionally, I think it does different things. And if you think about filmmaking or any of these kind of visual arts, they kind of jumped onto that music bandwagon of like being a real-time performance and so i think they do yeah kind of have a lot more in common than just the static kind of visual arts you know yeah absolutely that, and that makes sense of kubrick's quote you know why probably it's more comparable to music than it is to, to mm. other visual art forms mm. because it ties into the emotional aspect so as far as musical scores for movies do they sound that much better on Dolby 5.1? Or do you think the technical quality of a film score could be compromised if the score could is heard at home on, for instance, a streaming platform? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that? technically speaking, of course, you know, doing a mix in a Dolby Atmos room is awesome. Um, but honestly, really, you know, it's the same old kind of thing. Like, you know, if your music's good, it, it's probably going to, it's probably going to emote what it needs to emote in a crappy little mono speaker. Right? And that's really right. what's, you know, I, I think sometimes we get too hung up on, on technical detail of, of, of sound, uh, really what's going to, what's going to communicate emotion and story is not that it's something else. And that's, I think much more important to, to worry about. Yeah. And also, I mean, obviously home sound systems and headphones and, and the different places people listen to them. I mean, the quality is a lot better than it used to be where you'd maybe watching, you know, 
like through like a shitty old cathode ray speaker, you know, like one of those old TVs, you know, with a frequency response where you're actually not even hearing half the score. I think nowadays, um, I think, you know, the, the, the ability to have good sound is, is, is a lot easier, you know, and cheaper. Um, but like Mark says, I mean, you don't need to be tickled by an orchestra to laugh, you know, you can just, just get tickled by a little feather. Yeah. You know? I mean, honestly, a lot of times I'm watching when my wife and I are watching movies at the end of the day, because we have two little kids, I'm watching movies with headphones because we have a Roku remote. So, so it lets you plug headphones mm. into it. And just so I don't, you know. And then you're the getting the perfect experience because it's, there's no, it's perfect. you know, there's no peripheral noise. There's no sound. You've got it perfectly set to your, you know, the volume that you want. I've been in, in theaters, especially like in, you know, um, places like South Africa where, you know, maybe they haven't serviced the speakers for years, you know, like a center channel might not be working or the subs or the left or one of the surrounds or whatever. And I've taken people to watch films and I, I wanted them to have it in that experience. And it's actually been worse for me. I'm like, <laughs> the right speakers not working and the, they're playing everything through the center speaker which is where the dialogue is supposed to come out and it just sounded terrible and i'm you know all fidgety and i'm apologizing for it and of course they're like wow that was amazing people and you're like no it was so bad you know <laughs> now, you sound like, emotion now, like, now you sound like my cinematographer alex when we're doing screenings he's going up to people with his uh exactly. with his tablet he's like this is how the colors are supposed to be calibrated <laughs> like yeah, alex exactly. calm down that just bulb, calm down <laughs> that bulb died like two years ago like it's only half as bright as it should be it's like yeah no it's it's tough i mean there's never the ideal circumstance but like mark said it's ultimately you know the emotion of something will come through whether it was you know on a little ipod or a phone or a you know, IMAX, you know, it's, that's not what's going to make you cry. You know, the sound of the speakers. Yeah. Look, I mean, yeah. the way people digest um, media has changed dramatically and it's not going away anytime soon. So, you know, just, you just got to live with that and deal with it. It's to, to keep on getting stressed about how people should be listening on this system or that system is, you know, you're, you're fighting a losing battle. Right there. Yeah. I will say, though, I draw the line at watching movies on my iPhone. I will not do that. <laughs> that's, I don't feel like that's a good way to enjoy movies. No, um, it's not, I'll is... put you in a, on a plane from Los Angeles to South Africa, which is over 30 hours, and put you on a seat where the screen is broken. Um, I, I promise you, you probably will watch a few movies. All right, that's true. That's that's. A, that's <laughs> if you hold the iPhone up real close to your face, it's actually bigger that, than an that, IMAX. Screen. All right, you, you get, that's a justifiable, you know, kind of reason for a plane. Yeah, justifiable situation. Did did you guys want to share about anything that's in the works or anything that you're currently working on? I have um, a. Uh, a show for um, HBO um, Plus called um, uh, Wall Street, and it's about the actor Mark Wahlberg, who has a lot of businesses. He's, he's very invested in, um, excuse the pun, um, the, the market and, and building businesses. So it kind of follows him around, second season. It's a fun show to do, very, very different to anything I've ever really done before. Um, and... Um, I recently just finished a, a remake of, of a racer, you know, that Schwarzenegger movie from like in oh, yeah. 2000 or something. Yeah. Um, which is fun. Uh, nice. just, you know, balls to the wall everywhere kind of music. Um, um, really got into electric guitar for the first time and um, it was really cool. 
and then I have a, a YouTube channel that 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 I'm uh, um, very excited about. You know, I've, I've already got almost fifty um, episodes out, but I sort of demonstrate my instruments um, most of the time, weird instruments, and sort of go through the history of. And it's history. really funny. It's really funny. Oh, that's you, cool. If you get the chance, you've got to watch. I'm definitely going to check that out. Oh, and where well, can people watch that, Mark? It's on YouTube, and it's just called Mark Killian's channel. Great. It's just my name. Also, one more question from Dara. You guys had the chance to work with the London Symphony Orchestra on rendition. How was that experience? Uh, it would have been great, but we didn't. Oh, uh, oh we had the cellist. The cello solo was, was the cello. The soloist that we used on on one of the tracks was the lead cellist for the London Symphony Orchestra. But it was a but a long it time was a Hollywood ago, orchestra. And, and Andrew Schulman, I think uh, it was. Yeah, yeah. No, so we it was just a, at the uh, Warner stage with with what I think the they called Clint the Hollywood Eastman, scoring Clint Eastwood stage. Yeah. The Clint Eastwood stage. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was amazing. That cellist was amazing. Um, just working with an orchestra, it's so thrilling. I mean, I've, I've you know, obviously worked with a few in shows and theater shows and, um, uh, but just to be there and to hear this huge organic machine, just in sync, it's, it's an energy that you, if you've, if you've never sat in the middle of an orchestra while it's playing, there's no way you can possibly explain what it's like with all of that air moving with all of it. There are no speakers that can capture that, that energy. It takes you by the scruff of your neck and just lifts you up. It's amazing. When, when I was a very young kid, and I might have been like six or seven years old, my parents brought me to, they brought me on a tour at Universal Studios. I went with my parents on a tour, some some sort, sort of tourist sort of thing. Um, and they were, they brought you through like one section where there was an orchestra making the music for the show Murder, they wrote. You remember that show? And it had such a lasting impression on me. I was like, wow, that isn't, that's how they do that. I'm like, that's incredible. You know? Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I can only imagine. It's kind of like magic. Yeah. It is. It's like magic. Really, really great having both of you guys on the podcast. I, I truly enjoyed our conversation. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for having us. Likewise. Thank you very much.